0: Soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines, this morning at 0300, we launched Operation Desert Storm. Now, you must be the thunder and lightning of Desert Storm. Welcome to Thunder and Lightning, Operation Desert Storm. My name is Jason Dyson. Welcome back. This is the Battle of Kafchi. And, of course, we've been featuring music from 1991. That's a little Lenny Kravitz. It ain't over till it's over. Wow, what a great song. It could have been the title of the episode. All right, when last we spoke, it was Super Bowl Monday in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, at the business end of Operation Desert Storm. But as I mentioned in the last episode, we watched that whole Super Bowl and were never interrupted by the war, the entire Theater of Operations by late January, early February, 1991, 30 years ago this week, we were sort of getting lulled into a bit of a routine. Um, The Air Force and the Navy and the Marines went out and bombed the bejesus out of everything. At night, they searched for the mobile scud launchers during the day. Iraq had made good on its promise to attack Israel, but Israel had simply demanded that we keep looking for the scuds and we sent Patriot missiles to Israel because if Israel had come in the war, everything would have been different. The Arab countries that were on the side of the United States would not have fought against another Arab country with Israel on our side. That's just those ancient rivalries that no amount of geopolitics or a cost of a gallon of gasoline are ever going to change. And so by... Late January, it's two and a half weeks into the war, and for those of us in the 217th evacuation hospital, there really hasn't been anything to do, and the Army was not going to pay us, in my case, $844 a month plus $100 hazardous duty pay to sit around doing nothing. And so the Army has these things, or the military, has these things called details. They send you out on sort of a, a, a job, a side job, a side gig, if you will. This is a massive logistical effort going on. We've got 500,000, you know, soldiers and servicemen and women out in the middle of the desert, and you need things like, I don't know, food and water and bullets and medical equipment and clothing and all of these things that you just don't find laying around in the middle of the Arabian desert. So there's a huge place called the KKMC. Any Gulf War veteran that was there will remember it was called the King Khalid Military Cities so what I think that stands for. This massive city that was just built out of the desert, very, very big place. I never made it there myself during the war. And there was another big base of operations um, in Dharan, Saudi Arabia. So on that Monday morning after the Super Bowl, I am sent out on a detail with, I believe, Mike Alonso and some of the other guys – to what I thought at the time was just the Saudi Arabian air base there in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. turns out it was the King, I think it was the King Fahd Mil- um, Air Base. It was basically like their Air Force Academy is the best way I can describe it. Their version of our United States Air Force Academy up in Colorado Springs. And while I've never been to the United States Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs or any of our military universities, our service academies, what I saw there with the Saudis, and the Saudis don't do anything halfway. The only words that you know really pop into my mind even 30 years later, opulent, ornate, gold marble and glass, just a gorgeous facility. I grew up next to Randolph Air Force Base, which might be the most beautiful military installation in the, all of the American armed forces. Uh, this was something else. This was like walking into a royal Palace. The facilities were immaculate, and we had been told, you know, we had to show up in our uniform, and we didn't have a weapon with us on that particular day. Although, as I mentioned before, I had a little 32 caliber five shot revolver that I took everywhere with me because the Saudis were not all that friendly to us, and so uh, we get sent to this beautiful place, and we're told that we can bring our PT. Gear, our uh, physical training, and in those days, if you served in the military, in those days, you will remember the old gray sweatsuit with the gray shirt that had army emblazoned across the front. I loved that P.T. outfit. That's what I had with me, and some Converse tennis shoes. There's a picture of me. In that, uh, when when the war is over, that picture I posted before from the last night before we come home, and you can see me wearing these white Converse high tops. And we had one pair of civilian clothes that we were allowed to bring with us. Who knew when we were going to get to wear them? I didn't wear them until the last day before we went home. And so – I show up with that stuff, and I think we're going to be doing something involving the air operations, you know, helping out with that in some way. All sounded good to me. We were all getting a little bored. I did not know that you could spend seven hours playing the card game Spades, but you actually can, and and many, many hours more than that. I think Mike and I were even getting tired of playing Nintendo Golf and Tennis on our little Game Boy. So I was actually kind of excited to get over to the uh, Saudi Air Base. Well, they lead us into this beautiful place, and I swam uh, competitively when I was younger. And if you've ever been to an indoor swimming pool, there's a there's a smell. There's a smell that you can tell you're getting near a pool. Well in addition to the Olympic sized pool at this facility at the Saudi Air Base, there was there were bowling alleys, there was a beautiful series of basketball courts, racquetball courts, Nautilus gym, uh you name it, they had a bow and arrow range. I mean this place was just off the hook as they used to say back in the day. And so, you know, I get led back to the pool area, and everyone else is getting sent off into different directions. And I'm introduced to some Filipino guy. Uh, the Saudis do not do any of what we consider blue collar work. They bring in people from around the globe to do that for them. And the Saudi Air Academy was no exception. I didn't realize that I was one of those people being brought in to do this kind of work, however. And so our the Saudi handler tells me, "Okay, you'll be working with this guy. I don't recall his name. It's been 30 years." Quick aside, my friend Dr. Reiner asked me, how do you do this show? Um, the answer to that question is from memory. I'm not doing any research. I do have a few little notes here scribbled down on the Post-it note, but strangely enough, I try to do it all in one take as extemporaneously as possible. And what is also odd, is, is in a, unless I'm looking down at the Post-it notes, and I'm not using any today, I do the show with my eyes closed, just kind of a funny aside. I think it helps me remember the sights and sounds from 30 years ago. Now, I get led back to this area by the pool, and I'm informed that I'll be working with this Filipino guy all day handing out towels to the Saudi pilots. Well, I didn't just say no. I said heck no, except I used another four-letter word that rhymes with duck. And I decided no way. I, I grabbed my PT gear, my clothes, and my tennis shoes, and I went out to the basketball court and started playing basketball with some of the other people that were out there. Well, that did not go over so well with the Saudi guys there. And so – A couple hours later, before lunch, they came and got me, and they they take me back to an office. And by a singular coincidence, working in that office is the same redheaded Air Force major who had tendered his phone for our use, Mike Alonso and myself, to use on the first night that we arrived in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. And I explained, hey, I'm not going to be a towel boy for the Saudis. As I mentioned in a previous episode, I was already a little put off. By the Saudis, if I'm being perfectly honest, we're here to protect them from this third-rate clown show of an army, or so I thought at the time, the Iraqis, and yet they have all these rules. This litany of rules. We can't be seen reading the Bible. We can't have a scripture written on our helmet, although I found a picture from somebody in our unit that has a scripture written on her helmet. She obviously did not get the memo about that, and we all ignored it. We can't have the American flag visible. You can't call your chaplains chaplains. You have to call them morale officers. It's already a little irritated with the Saudis and their a bit of a condescending attitude attitude that I had picked up on in the limited time that I'd spent around them up to this point. Well, the Air Force major is like, okay, Jason, I get that. He says, come back tomorrow, and I'll have a better gig for you. You're going to be uh, riding security with one of the I guess like an air forward air observer or something. The, the, by this time, the Saudi Air Force, who many times trained right where I'd lived in at Randolph Air Force Base, I've seen Saudi pilots all my life uh, in different parts of my old uh, neighborhood uh, because of where Randolph Air Force Base is and the fact that they train people to train others how to fly. Sorry, I just hit the microphone with my hand. I told you my eyes are closed, and and so I, I mean I was familiar with the fact that the Saudis had a pretty significant air force. Well. Um, he says, you're going to be uh, pulling, you know, pulling security um, for two guys from the Saudi airbase. And so I show up the next day. Uh, it's myself. It's a Canadian or an English or an Australian soldier. I've got a picture of him right there in the episode description. He was sitting behind the driver's seat, and I would be sitting behind the passenger seat. Our job was simply to keep our rifles pointed out the window in case anything bad happened. It was really just to make the guy in the passenger seat feel important. But again, I was happy to be in a Humvee and have some mobility. It sounded all good to me. So the four people in our vehicle, there is the driver. I do not remember his name. Um, he was in the Saudi National Guard, and he could not say my first name, Jason. He called me Jackson, Jackson. It sounded like Michael Jackson. The guy in the passenger seat, I'm just going to call him passenger because everything that's about to happen, driving into the Battle of Qafji and the seven or eight times I rode around at Riyadh, Saudi Arabia with them, the passenger The guy from the Saudi Air Academy never said one single solitary word to me, not one single word, not when we met and not when we said goodbye later in February. Uh, my friend from Canada or Australia, I don't recall his name. i tried as hard as I could to see the little uh, name tag on his uniform in the picture, and I just cannot make it out. It's its just too, it's too hard to see. And unlike today, you can't blow up the old 35-millimeter pictures with your fingers like you can nowadays. I've tried everything, and I still can't tell what country he was from and what his name was. A very nice guy. And so um, we're moving out with these guys, and the plan is to go up to Dauron. We're told, hey, this may be a couple days. I've got some MREs and some food. Uh, I always had about a, a pound of M&Ms in my cargo pockets, uh, plane on one side, peanut on the other. We had water and, and gasoline, and we're going up in a little convoy. Well, as we're getting close to Daran, I don't have a map either. I'm just, I'm just along for the ride as the old row goes. And as I've also said in in previous episodes, I couldn't pick up my cell phone and find out what's going on in the world. Well, as we get closer to Iran, it's obvious that something is happening. Uh, My Canadian counterpart on my left doesn't have a radio either, and when they do talk on the radio up front, they're speaking in Farsi or Arabic or whatever it is they were speaking. I certainly couldn't understand it. It did not come with an English translation And so it's obvious that something is going on. And so uh, unbeknownst to me, we're now heading for Kofji. Many hours into this journey, uh, we are now passing just vehicle after vehicle, all kinds of military vehicles. What we did not learn until later is that while the entire theater of operations is kind of settling into, let's just do the air war and see what happens next, when we will wait till the Allies launch the ground war, across the border in Kuwait, against all odds, and he shocked the world when he did it, Saddam Hussein had made the first move. He had sent his mechanized infantry divisions and his tanks into the coastal city of Kothji, which is right there, Kuwait, and nobody saw it coming. It was a total surprise. Marines were trapped in the city. Uh, it, it, was, it turned out to be a very, very sharp engagement all of these things I found out afterwards and in the subsequent years of just thinking about this. And so we're driving into what I think is still Dharan. I have no idea. I mean, the signs are in Arabic. And, you know, we're pulling in, and it's, it's hard to describe what, what this place looks like. It is a coastal town, but it is very industrial looking. In my estimation, uh, Saddam Hussein had already lit the oil wells on fire in Kuwait. When you look ahead, it looks like nighttime is coming. You've never seen anything like this. One of the reasons I don't believe in man-made global warming or climate change because – if man could have changed the climate it would have happened in the early uh, year 1991 when Saddam Hussein lit 300 oil wells on fire and they burned for months and months and months putting out more pollution into the atmosphere he dumped the gas millions of gallons of oil into the Persian Gulf and I'm convinced it's more you know climate damaging emissions in in 3 months than in the history Of the world that preceded it, even more so than probably Mount Vesuvius. And the earth, eh, it shrugged it off after a few months. And so we're heading into this very strange battlefield. When I was at Fort Ord, we had a place out in the back of Fort Ord called the Impossible City where we did what was called MOUT training, M-O-U-T, Military Operations Urban Training. And we had done a thing one time with alpha companies, about 120 guys. You know, we had on all what was called the MILES equipment, multi-integrated laser emission system. It's like a very advanced game of laser tag, except it's, it's with the military. We put 120 guys uh, to take a single uh, block in a city, and we lost about 50% of our guys, all simulated, you understand. And we found out we had only been fighting against 12 other people. And I thought to myself, well, I hope I never have to fight in an urban <laughs> environment. That doesn't sound like a lot of fun. Well, we drive right into an urban conflict. This is an old-fashioned 20th century Fest. You can hear the crunch, crunch, crump, 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 of artillery. Don't know who it is. The The passenger, the Saudi who doesn't speak to me, he's got this old Rand McNally-looking map thing. He's trying to figure out where we are. It's not a like a regular military map of any kind. It's the kind your parents used to take out of the glove compartment on summer vacation. You could never get it folded up the same way again. We're stopping sporadically. They're talking to the people on the road. And we end up driving into this city. I remember seeing the ocean on my right hand side. I remember seeing a lot of smoke in the air and like I said, just the constant crunching sound of artillery rounds and you hear airplanes going overhead. When tank rounds go overhead, they they sound they don't they don't make like a, a popping sound. It's like a freight train roaring over your head. You can hear everything going on. It's just it's too much for the mind to process. And so they they pulled a Humvee over on a side road, and they want to go up to see if they can see where the fighting is, and so we get out, and we walk into – it it's almost like a duplex, like a row of duplexes. We go into the front door, and it, it looks like we walked into someone's living room. There are family portraits on the wall. There is, you know, carpeting. There is just the everyday stuff. Now, by this time, the coastal city of Kapti has been evacuated by the Saudis. There's no civilians living there in any great numbers. Uh, we walk up the steps into the upper part of this little duplex thing, out onto a patio where we see, uh, we can see much. Further now, not a lot further, but much further. And like I said, that's just the blackness of the oil fields burning and all of these crazy sounds. And then we hear a sound that I've never heard before. If you've ever watched the movies and you see the, the bullets ricocheting, they don't really make a popping or, or cracking sound or a whizzing sound. They have almost a weird, especially the higher caliber weapons, they have almost a longing sound. I, I I can't describe it and as we're we're sitting there we become aware that there are rounds bouncing off the facade above the building that we're in and you don't need any training to tell you to get down and so we we immediately get down myself and the Canadian guy get down he is on my on my left and as I press into that little balcony thing I realize my back is sort of depressing it it's not solid stone and I think to myself okay first of all this little wall is not going to stop anything in terms of bullets, especially from what appears to be some pretty high-caliber stuff coming in. And I also become aware as I'm facing back towards the, the, the patio doors that we've come out of, the two Saudi guys are scrambling off the patio on all fours as fast as they can. I'm watching as my Canadian friend is loading a little grenade into his – he had a a rifle with a grenade launcher, and he gets up and he um, shoots the grenade down into the building. I can't even see what he's shooting at. And I realized he shot a smoke grenade because when I raise up, I have the um, old M16A1. It was my favorite rifle of all time for whatever reason, just my height and my build. When I put the M16A1 uh, uh, butt stock into my shoulder, my Kevlar helmet, the, the brim of my Kevlar helmet rested perfectly on the rear sight aperture of that old M16A1, I came up to see what was going on. I saw men in green uniforms. I realized that my uh, Canadian counterpart has fired off a smoke grenade. Uh, I don't know if he meant to or if he was thinking he was covering us. Now he's uh, loading his weapon. I had four 30-round magazines of 120 rounds. When I was at Fort Benning doing this similar kind of mount training, we did something called a door drill, that when people are outside and you start to shoot at them, smart human beings try to go back inside. So you don't aim at the people that are out in the courtyard or whatever. You aim at the door that they've got to run back into or that are coming out. As the smoke cleared, um, I could see the door. It's like across the street. Just imagine a suburban street, a backyard, and a courtyard, and somebody coming out into the backyard of a duplex. And now we're shooting down into that courtyard. And so with all the – it was green smoke, all this green smoke, and the wind is blowing it from right to left, I put that rear post on on the door, and the M16A1 had a fully automatic setting. I had never ever fired the M16A1 in a fully automatic capacity ever in the five years I'd been in the military. But it seemed appropriate at the time, and the adrenaline is up. And with my left thumb, I just did it like muscle memory. I just lifted my hand up like I'm doing it right now, <laughs> uh, up to 12 o'clock. And I remember again training three to five round bursts. Empty. It does not take any time to go through thirty rounds, and um, the people in that courtyard heading back into that door uh, have had better have had better um, afternoons. I assure you. Uh, I dropped that thirty-round magazine, and it's still sitting on that balcony. As far as I know, somebody probably found it. You're really supposed to police those up. I just had too much going on in my head at the time. Um, took out another one. Uh, Put it in, and and before I got to the third burst, the Canadian guy grabbed me by the back of the – what we used to call our LCE, load-carrying equipment. The Army has abbreviations for everything, and he says, we've got to go. They're going to leave us. And so we get off the patio. We can still hear the whirr and the whiz of, of rounds. We get downstairs, we get out front. The Humvee's not there. For a split second, I'm thinking nobody knows where I am. I mean, the guys back at the 217th Evacuation Hospital just know I'm um, Special Detail with the, the the King Faisal Air Base. I. I don't have any mechanism for doing anything and so of uh, contacting anybody I don't have a phone I don't have a radio and so I, I look to the right and then I see that the the guys have moved the humvee down the street a little bit now I don't know if they were leaving us or if they were just trying to get a better view of something but I was pretty mad thinking they had and I was pretty mad that they had flown off the patio as fast as they have but in the years since that I've thought about it. I don't think they had rifles with them when they went up on the patio and handguns were not going to do anything in that situation. But they they ran off pretty quickly considering it was their city that was being invaded. Copci is a Saudi Arabian city and the Canadian guy and the guy from Texas did more uh, to defend it than these two guys. Ever did, and so we get back in the Humvee, and I yell at the driver, "Were you gonna leave us?" And I've got my hand, I'm digging into my cargo pocket where I've got my 32 caliber five shot revolver, and it's mixed in with my uh, bag full of peanut M&Ms, and I'm thinking, I got to remember to blow the peanut M&Ms out of the the chamber if I have to shoot this guy in the head. And no, 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 we were trying to get, he, he was trying to explain it. He, I, I never knew what what they were doing. But we get in the Humvee. He makes a U-turn and it says, "We have to get back south. We have to get out of here." I'm thinking, "I'm fine with that. I've done. I've had all the uh, have all the action I need for this particular afternoon." He gets up to the street and makes a left. I become aware that the ocean is still on our right, and it doesn't take a genius to figure out we're still traveling north. I yell at him, "You're going the wrong way. You're going the wrong way." The passenger is still fiddling with the map, and as we come astride another street, we look down and we see the same people, not the same people we've been shooting at, but people that are dressed that way running across the street. Um, You can hear the clank, 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 clank of either Qatari or Saudi or Kuwaiti tanks or Iraqi tanks. You can't tell. Things are happening so fast. You just can't Process it quickly enough. He finally realizes that yep, we're going the wrong way. He's he's talking to the guy. I'll say the one thing about the passenger. Although he never said a word to me, he never panicked either, except when he ran off the the balcony, the way he did on on all fours. We made a U turn and we started heading back south towards the as all these vehicles were coming in. I think it was the 31st of January or the 1st of February, but my entire time spent. And you know shooting combat lasted, I would say less than three minutes, less than a song on the radio. And we're going back and we're seeing all these foreign troops coming up. And uh, the driver looks back and says, "I think those were Qatari troops." So that's one of the reasons I've never really talked about. It. I thought, "Uh oh, was I shooting at uh, friendlies?" I, I had a standing rule though: if, if I shoot back at everybody that shoots at. Uh, and so we made our way back. Uh, it took a long time because of the traffic and they were stopping and getting updates from the Saudi vehicles w- of which there were many coming up. And then things started to peter out. And then we got back into Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, very, very, very early in the morning, not late at night. And I can remember coming into view of Riyadh and just trying to process everything that had happened and thinking to myself, you know what, it's there there's no rules out here there's not going to be any investigation there's no cops to call there's this, this is just what this is this is a a war and the most unexpected things can happen if you have time i highly encourage you to read up on the battle of kokji this was my small minute a uh, small portion of the thunder and lightning of Desert Storm. And I just remember as I was heading back um, to, to Riyadh that evening, uh, You at know, I, I, one point I thought we were in Kuwait City. I still had no idea where we had been. It wasn't until I saw an, uh, an article in, a, I think it was a Newsweek, the headline, it read Saddam's Weird War. And that's when I kind of figured out and pieced together What had happened? Because, like I said, most of the conversation with the guys in the front seat uh, was just, you know, basic stuff. With the driver, the passenger didn't speak to me, and the Canadian guy and I just kept looking at each other, shaking our head, like, "Man, what have we, what have we gotten ourselves into?" I remember, right as we were leaving Kopchi heading back, I'm thinking, you know, I guess we're still in danger. Nobody knows where I am. I took the, I took the bag of um, M and M's out of my pocket. I opened it. I opened it up and so I could write on it, and I wrote my name, my social security number, my rank, my unit, and my parents' address in Universal City on the inside, and tucked it in my chest pocket just in case. But uh, nothing, nothing too terrible happened, and we got back to Riyadh. And uh, they said, "Okay, we'll see you in a couple days." You know, I, I had guard duty coming up, and um, they said, "Okay, be back here." I think it was going to be on a Saturday or a Sunday for another, another escort. Like nothing had happened, like it was no big deal. But I had seen up close just how how quickly and chaotically things can become. It was one minute you're riding in a Humvee, and the next minute you're in the middle of this thing that you can't even really – Understand because I had no frame of reference the entire time all that was going on I didn't even know we were in the city of Kofji I don't think I really knew that until I saw a Newsweek article uh, at the at the uh, PX they had set up there. You could buy magazines and newspapers occasionally. They were usually a couple days old. And it was a Newsweek cover that said Saddam's Weird War. And I read up on that. I was like, oh, yeah, Kofji. I think that's where we were. And so on uh, our next episode, I'm going to talk to you. You know, this is a big surprise to everybody, but it doesn't really change the tactics of the American military. It continues to be mostly an air war, and I continue to travel around Riyadh with these guys and this Humvee and my Canadian friend. And so next time, I'm going to talk to you about... Some of my experiences there in Riyadh um, coming face-to-face with some of the, the less talked-about aspects of Arab culture, as we referred to it in those days, that has, has left a really bad uh, taste in my mouth, if you will, about that culture ever since 1991 when I saw, up, when I saw it up close. But that will be next time on Thunder and Lightning, Operation Desert Storm. I want to thank you so much for listening. My name is Jason Dyes, and until next we speak.